It has often been said that the Christian life is like a race. It involves running, and we find this kind of imagery in the Sermon to the Hebrews. A matter of fact, at the beginning of chapter 12, if you notice, we find the overarching exhortation to run with endurance the race that is set before us. But notice, coupled with running is also looking, or some translations have fixing. You can run with your eyes closed, but you won't get very far. So coupled with the verb run is look. Now, any one of us who carefully contemplates the Christian life knows that if life is like a race, it's longer than any race imaginable in this world. And coupled with length of this race is the difficulty of this race. There is no maturing Christian that imagines they're running like an Olympian. Much of the time, the Christian is running like a soldier in battle, just trying to make it to the end, but the end still seems so far away. Notice in chapter 12, verse 3, the preacher to the Hebrews is well aware of the experience of the Christian life. Our running is confronted by weight and sin so that the Christian can grow weary and faint-hearted. And when we consider the matter of the Lord's discipline, yes, he disciplines those he loves, but it's often what? It's often painful rather than pleasant. And even when the Christian is trained by it, even when we learn from it, we have the promise that the peaceful fruit of righteousness will be yielded. But the Christian still wonders, how much longer until this race is over? How much longer until I come to the end? Well, our text this afternoon contributes to the imagery of running and the imagery of looking by telling the Christian where they have come. This is interesting. Does the Christian life involve running? We would say Yes. Does the Christian life involve looking? Of course, we must look to Jesus, who is the author and perfecter of our faith. But added to this, the preacher to the Hebrews tells the Christian where they have come. Notice that in verses 18 through 24. For you have not come. Later in verse 22, but you have come. The Christian runs, looks, because of where they have come. One could say that in order to run, the eyes must be opened, and the one who runs must know where he is going. Maybe you have heard someone trying to describe a difficult circumstance in their life, and they're trying to persevere, but they go on to say, I don't know whether I am coming or I am going. All they can see is what is before them. And perhaps they're looking to Christ. They know that he has all they need, and yet Christ and all of his blessings, they still seem so far away from them. My brothers and sisters, I'm sure this has been your experience in the past. Perhaps it's your experience right now. As long as you're in this world, it will be at some time your experience in the future. The reality is that we often run the Christian life looking more at ourselves than Christ but then when we look to Christ, our vision is often blurred by the troubles of this life that we lose sight not only of what he has accomplished, but what Christ has also applied. Not only what he has done, but what he has given to us. And so the preacher to the Hebrews is saying here, not only is the Christian life a race that you must run, not only must you run with your eyes open, looking to Jesus, but with your running and looking is the true reality of where you have 
come. You must run and look from the true reality of where you have come. Now, for many, their mind turns right away to the principle of the already, not yet. Maybe you've heard that before. This principle guards the Christian from an overrealized eschatology. Now, those are just big words for overrealizing what is possessed by the Christian. So, from this perspective, overrealized eschatology, overrealizing what I already possess as a Christian, the Christian says, well, there's no common curse. There is no more sin. Suffering and trial are behind me. And if a Christian thinks otherwise, well, maybe they're not a Christian. That's overrealized eschatology. They may sound crazy, but there are some believers that hold this perspective. This already not yet principle is important for a realistic understanding of the Christian life. But there's a danger. And the danger is to focus on the not yet to the neglect of the already. So, right, the already is the overrealized, overrealizing what I already possess as a Christian. The not yet is an underrealized eschatology. Those are big words for underrealizing what is already possessed by me, the Christian. This perspective believes they're still under the common curse. At least they act like they're still under the common curse. They're still running but unable to lay aside the sin, the weight that so easily entangles. And every day from this perspective is just seen as a trial stock full of suffering. And if a Christian thinks otherwise, well, maybe they're probably just over-realizing things. But our text this afternoon provides the balm for this imbalanced perspective. And it's wrapped up in the word hope. Hope. The principal subject of Hebrews 11 is faith, of chapter 12, hope, and of chapter 13, love. But we have to ask, what is hope? Now, we can understand hope as either an emotion or a theological virtue. An emotion or a theological virtue. As an emotion, hope is a natural response to a future sensible good. Hope as an emotion is distinct from desire. Desire just chooses a present good. But hope is an emotion chooses a sensible future good. This is hope as an emotion. A sensible future good. I'm choosing that sensible future good. Hope as a theological virtue is different. Hope as a theological virtue is a gift of God whereby the will chooses the eternal good. Who is that eternal good? God. Hope as a theological virtue is a gift of God whereby the will chooses the eternal good of union with God. Hope as a theological virtue stands in between two sins of either over-realizing what you possess as a Christian or under-realizing what you possess as a Christian. On one side, we have the sin of over-realizing, and that's the sin of presumption. Presumption is assuming you will be saved according to your own capacities without repentance. Presumption. You're presuming that you will be saved according to your own capacity. That's one side, the sin of presumption. 
On the other side, we have the sin of under-realizing, which is despair. Over-realizing presumption, under-realizing despair. This sin ceases to hope for salvation from God because sin is too great and God's mercy is too little. Presumption thinks salvation, you could say, is, to boil it down to one word, automatic. Right? No persevering, no trouble, as just described. Presumption thinks salvation is automatic. Despair thinks salvation is impossible. Now, we have to ask, how then is hope the balm for this imbalanced perspective on the already not yet? And it's because of this. Hope is not just something far away. We think of hope as a wish, right? Kind of like hope as an emotion, trying to stretch out to this sensible future good. But hope is not just something far away and in no way already present. Rather, as a theological virtue, and I repeat, it is a gift of God whereby the will chooses the eternal good of union with God. Since it is a gift of God's grace, we need not despair because God infuses us with the grace to hope. And since it's exercised through the power of God, we need not presume. We need not presumption, depending on our own capacity to be saved, because God infuses us with grace to hope. In this sense, hope is already not yet. Already because the Christian right now in this life is willing and choosing that eternal good. And at the same time, not yet. Because that future eternal good in all of its fullness is still to come. But you see, man needs hope not only for the future, but for the present. There are many troubles and difficulties represented in this room among us. And our text addresses us right where we are. Our text on Christian hope comes to us, though, within the context of perseverance. The preacher to the Hebrews is addressing Christians who must persevere. This is the last introductory question, but this is the main question this afternoon. Why and how can the Christian persevere? Why and how can you persevere? Well, our main point, the main point of this sermon answers that question. Persevere how? In hope. Persevere in hope. Why? Because you have not come to the curse of the law, but the blessing of the gospel. Persevere, how? In hope. Why? Because you have not come to the curse of the law, but the blessing of the gospel. And we'll examine our text just unfolding that one main point. First, persevere in hope because you have not come to the curse of the law. That's verses 18 through 21. Persevere in hope because you have not come to the curse of the law. Second, Persevere in hope because you have come to the blessing of the gospel. That's verses 22 through 24. Persevere in hope because you have come 
to the blessing of the gospel. First, persevere in hope, my brothers and sisters, because you have not come to the curse of the law. I want you to note from verses 18 through 21, three things. The frightening things they saw, verse 18. The frightening things they heard, verse 19. And the frightening things they faced, verses 20 to 21. So what they saw, verse 18, what they heard, verse 19, and what they faced, verses 20 to 21. First, the frightening things they saw. The preacher says, For you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest. Here we are reminded of what Israel saw at Mount Sinai, and in particular, the event of the giving of the Ten Commandments. And the first assertion, you have not come, implies a contrast in the way that Israelites came. One commentator wrote this. He said, the theme is now resumed of the definitive contrast between the old and the new, which permeates this epistle. I think it's better to say which permeates this sermon. He says, the contrast between the imperfect and the perfect, between the temporary and the permanent, between the law and the gospel. In Deuteronomy 4.11, it says, they came and stood at the foot of the mountain, a mountain that may be touched. But as Exodus 19.12 reads, whoever touches the mountain shall be put to death. The words fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest, those words take us back to Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 11, where it said that the mountain burned with fire and there was darkness, cloud, and a tempest. This was a frightening sight that Israel saw. But it's important to understand the reason for these things, that it was by these very things they saw that God manifested his presence. This is what we call a theophany, a sensible manifestation of God's presence. And in this particular event, it was intended to invoke fear within their hearts. As one pastor said, though, the medium is the message. As Owen puts it, these visible manifestations were provided to bring about a particular response. So if we get the manifestations, we don't get what they're communicating, what they signify, we miss it. They were provided to bring about a particular response from the people. God, in this way, revealed his holiness and confronted Israel with their sinfulness. God was impressing upon the nation the infinite chasm that exists between the creator and the creature. As they saw the fire, they were confronted with God's judgment. As they saw the darkness and gloom and tempest, they were being confronted, as it were, with their spiritual condition. And what they saw was the very curse of of the law. The curse of the covenant of works was being impressed upon their consciences. The curse which says, everyone who disobeys will die in their sins. And note, this was not coupled with the promise of the covenant of works. The Mosaic covenant is not just a republication of the covenant of works, both in promise and curse. We have the curse here, but not the promise. The curse of the covenant of works remains under the Mosaic covenant, but not its promises. There was nothing here to suggest that if they obeyed, they would have eternal life. Rather, what's being impressed upon them is that if they obeyed, they would live in the land. But still, the curse of the law remained. What Israel saw was the very curse of the law. But we have to make a contrast. 
My brothers and sisters, this is not what you see under the new covenant. If you have trusted in Christ alone, this is not where you have come. This is not where you have come because this is where Christ has gone for you. Christ in his humanity has borne these frightening and sensible things. Christ bore the fire of God's judgment. Christ saw that darkness and gloom and tempest most acutely at the cross, both in body and soul. My brothers and sisters, you have not come to the curse of the law because Christ has borne the curse of the law. Paul declares in Galatians 3.13, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. And what was seen by Israel was more acutely seen by Christ so that all you may see amidst all the trouble is the blessing of the gospel. This is how and why you persevere. Persevere in hope because you have not come to the curse of the law. But the preacher to the Hebrews doesn't stop with what Israel saw. He adds what they heard. Notice verse 19. The preacher continues, And the sound of the trumpet and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them. Here we are reminded of Exodus 19, 16 where it says the loud blast of a trumpet sounded and in Deuteronomy 4.12, recalling the very same event, says the Lord spoke to them out of the midst of the fire and they heard the sound of words. And this was so awesome in itself to make the hearers entreat that no further message be spoken to them. Stop speaking. Remember, Israel said to Moses, you speak to us and we will hear, but don't let God speak to us lest we die. Remember, the purpose of this theophany was a particular response, though. And that was fear from the people. And it was not only seeing the curse of the law that invoked fear within their hearts, but hearing the prohibitions of the law, it only intensified that fear. Remember, they were not allowed to touch what they saw. Any infraction, just think about that. Any infraction was to be punished with death. Even Moses, who drew near to the divine presence, drew near trembling with fear because he too saw and heard the curse of the law. Moses could only draw near because of God's call. But everyone heard that curse of the law in the sound of the trumpet, the curse which says everyone who disobeys will die in their sin. Again, there was nothing here that was coupled with promise, that if they obeyed, they would have eternal life, but rather if they obeyed, they would live in the land, but still the curse remains. What Israel heard was the curse of the law. We have to make a contrast between the old covenant and the new. Beloved, if you have trusted in Christ alone, this is not where you have come. This is not where you have come because this is where Christ has gone for you. Christ in his humanity has borne these frightening and sensible things. Christ heard the sound of the trumpet as it were, and that voice that made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken. And he did so most acutely at the cross. My brothers and sisters, you have not come to the curse of the law because Christ has gone and borne the curse of the law. 
Christ heard Deuteronomy 27, 26, which says, Cursed be anyone who does not confirm the words of the law by doing them. Christ heard this and perfectly and perpetually obeyed. He did that. Christ, who said in these words of dereliction, Father, let this cup pass from me, but not as I will, your will be done. He bore the curse of the law and yet endured patiently for his people. Christ has done so, so that all you may hear is the blessing of the gospel. This is how and why you persevere. Persevere in hope because you have not come to the curse of the law. The preacher to the Hebrews concludes with the frightening things Israel faced. Not only what they saw and they heard, but what they faced. Look at verses 20 to 21. The preacher to the Hebrews says, For they could not endure the order that was given. If even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. It's interesting to note that here the preacher to the Hebrews turns from fire. He turns from darkness. He turns from the sound of the trumpet to the very words spoken by God. Words composed the order that was given, and Israel could not endure that order given in the words of the law. It seems here that the most terrifying, sensible experience was being faced with the words of the living God. So terrifying that even one like Moses, who was allowed to approach and ascend the mountain, Moses trembled with fear. Why? Why did he tremble? Because he, along with Israel, faced the inscrutable presence of God. Like Adam and Eve upon their fall, they could not endure the order that was given. But we contrast that frightening, sensible experience with the experience of the beloved under the new covenant. If you have trusted in Christ alone, This is not where you have come. This is not where you have come because this is where Christ has gone for you. Christ in his humanity, he's borne all these frightening and sensible things. This is what Christ faced. Christ faced the order that was given that no man can endure, and he did so most acutely at the cross. What was faced by Israel was more acutely faced by Christ, both in body and soul. Christ who for the joy set before him, what does Hebrews say? Endured the cross, despising the shame. We know this is so because he was buried, descended into hell to declare victory, and Christ rose from the dead. And as the preacher has already expressed in Hebrews, he is seated at the right hand of God, interceding as our great high priest for us. And Christ has done all of this so that all you face This is the true reality. All you face is the blessing of the gospel. Our confession, forget which chapter it mentions, that though trials come, the evil sting of trials has been removed. How is that so? Because you have not come to the curse of the law. 
You have not arrived. You have not yet already been made perfect. But as we will meditate now upon, you have come to the blessing of the gospel. This is how and why you persevere. But you may ask, how how in the world do I know I have not come to the curse of the law? Well, let me provide you with a syllogism. A syllogism is just a way to organize, organize truths logically in order to impress them upon our consciences and our hearts. The first premise is the main premise. Then there's a supporting premise, and then there's a conclusion. And in light of the truth that you've just heard, if you're asking yourself, how do I know that I've come, that I've not come to the curse of the law, but the blessing of the gospel? The first main premise is Christ has come and borne the curse of the law. The second premise is I have trusted in Christ alone. And my friend then, if you have trusted in Christ alone, what's the conclusion? I am no longer under the curse of the law, but I have come to the blessing of the gospel. Regardless of what you may feel or how morbidly you may examine your sin, if you have trusted in Christ alone, this is true. You say, how and why can I persevere? Christ says to you, who is present by his spirit even now, persevere in hope because you have not come to the curse of the law. You have come to the blessing of the gospel. Let's turn to verses 22 to 24. I want you to note that you have come first to the blessing of future glory the blessing of future glory. That's verse 22. Second, you have come to the blessing of companionship with the church. The blessing of companionship with the church. That's verse 23, first half, 23a. The blessing of future glory, the blessing of companionship with the church. Third, you have come to familiarity with God. The blessing of familiarity with God. That's the second half of verse 23 and verse 24, the blessing of familiarity with God. As we briefly contemplate the blessing of the gospel, one commentator writes, he says, how different are the circumstances of Zion, the mount of God's grace, where thanks to the perfect law-keeping and all-sufficient sacrifice of the incarnate Son in our stead, he says, we are incited to draw near with boldness, to draw near into the heavenly holy of holies. How great the contrast. My brothers and sisters, we read earlier in the sermon to the Hebrews that we have access to the holy places because of what? The shed blood of Jesus. Because Christ endured to the very end, because Christ persevered, we have indeed come to the blessing of the gospel. If you're going to persevere into the very end with joy, even as you sorrow What you need to do is rehearse these truths every day. Every morning, every evening, you need to meditate on where you have come. First, you have come to the blessing of future glory. Verse 22, the preacher to the Hebrews says, but you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering." We observe here a very description of future glory to which we persevere in hope. 
First, Mount Zion. Mount Zion, in one sense, comprehends all that is written in verses 22 to 24. But in another sense, it represents God's dwelling place. Psalm 9, verse 11. It also represents the king's throne. Psalm 2, verse 6. This is further described by the words, city of the living God. This means that the Mount Zion here is not physical, temporal, like Mount Sinai, but it's the heavenly Jerusalem, symbolized by that earthly city of Jerusalem. You know, Paul's allegory in Galatians 4.25, it provides us a perfect contrast between Mount Sinai and the Jerusalem above. Mount Sinai distinguished as bondage, the Jerusalem above distinguished by freedom. This heavenly city of freedom is the same city to which Abraham in faith looked forward. It is the same city to which we, the church, militant by faith, we look forward. For as the preacher to the Hebrews says, for here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. This city is the capital of the new heavens and the new earth where God dwells with men. And all the former things have passed away, as the Apostle John declares in Revelation 21. He says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw, he says, the holy city. Just think about this. In contrast to what Israel saw, the frightening things they saw, this is what the Apostle John saw and wrote for us. I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also, he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage. I will be his God, and he will be my son. But it doesn't stop there. Back in Hebrews, the preacher declares that having come to the hope of future glory, we have come to the hope of innumerable angels in festal gathering. These are the mighty ones who perpetually serve the Lord, performing his will. As Psalm 103.20 says, they are his hosts, his ministers who do his will. And they're also sent to serve us, his people. As Hebrews 1.14 says, they are sent out for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation. Angels are those with whom the people of God, you can say, are united. As we read in Ephesians 1.10, there we see all things united in Christ, he says, in heaven and on earth. And these angels then are an additional joy to our company, to the company of saints. Together, all the saints and all the angels, bless the Father, bless the Son, bless the Spirit, three in one, world without end. Beloved, persevere in hope, because to this hope of future glory, this is where you have come. 
as your will inclines toward this eternal good by grace, the hope of future glory is already yours. Yes, it seems like so far away. But get this. Every Sabbath day, when you come to worship with the church, when you come to enter his special presence, you join in heaven's praise. God is really present. The Lord Jesus by his spirit is really present and angels are really present. And while you are seated, while you are standing, listening and praying and singing and taking part in the supper, you are persevering in hope because you have come to the blessing of the gospel. If you're in Christ and you're seated here today, you're not just sitting, you're persevering in hope. Already you have come. Already you have come because right now in this life, you're willing, you're choosing that future good. And at the same time, it's not yet because that eternal good, that future glory is still to come in full. But nonetheless, this is where you have come. Christ, the one in his humanity, saw and heard and faced the curse of the law. He's borne that curse for you. So again, all you may see and hear and face is the blessing of the gospel. You have come to the blessing of future glory. That's not all. Second, you have come to the blessing of companionship with the church. The first half of verse 23, you have come to companionship with the church. The preacher says, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven. We need to keep in mind here the contrast between the curse of the law and the blessings of the gospel. The language here reminds us, again, of the assembly of Israel under the leadership of Moses at Sinai. Remember, Israel was regarded by God as his firstborn in Exodus 4.22. But in light of the new covenant, the title firstborn is now transferred to the New Testament church, the kingdom of Christ, both locally and universally. How? Through the agency of the gospel, sinners are reborn. According to God's mercy, they are born anew, as Peter says, to a living hope. As James puts it, they are the first fruits of his creatures, dedicated to God, members of Christ's body, heirs of all things by virtue of their union with Christ. Christ, who is the firstborn from the dead. The assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven refers to companionship with the church. And my friends, this is a permanent companionship. Athanasius commenting on Matthew 25, 34 says, who would not wish to enjoy the high companionship of these? Who would not desire to be enrolled with these that they may hear with them? Come ye blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. Yes, in this life, we see brothers and sisters come and go. But beloved, we have this blessing of the gospel a permanent companionship with the church. Look around you. It's okay to look. You, didn't, you came as a family, but you came to gather with the church. Those around you may come and go, but if they're in Christ, they will be with you forever. Forever. 
And it's one of the joys of preaching that I get to see something you all don't see seated there. I get this panoramic view of the church, and it's beautiful. Because what I see is a foretaste of that eternal good. You may still say, well, how do you persevere in hope when the gates of hell press against the church? How do you rejoice even when sin in the church hurts the church? My friends, you remember there is one who has founded the church and there is one who perfects the church. There is one who disciplines the church and trains the church. You must remember Jesus Christ. It is Christ who for the joy set before him endured the cross and despised the shame to establish this assembly who is enrolled in heaven. This is the assembly we read of in Hebrews 11, who was guiding them. Who was guiding the church under the old covenant? Who was protecting those saints? Who sustained them and who nourished them? It was Jesus Christ. So when you're feeling discouraged about the church and you don't know what to do, when your energies hang low, persevere in hope because you have not come to the curse of the law, no matter how dark the church's life may be. The gates of hell shall not prevail, but they do press. But no matter how dark they may be, you have come to this blessing of the gospel. Permanent companionship with the church. But that's not all that the preacher of Hebrews highlights. Inspired by the Holy Spirit, the preacher says, you have come to the blessing of familiarity with God. The second half of verse 23 through verse 24, the preacher says, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. By familiarity with God, I mean it positively. First, there's familiarity with God the Father. The second half of verse 23, the preacher declares, God the judge of all. God is the one before whom every creature will stand. He is judge of all because God is one. Now, care must be taken here to not separate the operations of the blessed trinity. While the doctrine of appropriations sounds technical, but it's beautiful. While the doctrine of appropriations teaches that there are particular works that may be appropriated to one of the persons of the Trinity, we must be careful to remember the doctrine of inseparable operations. Another technical word, but it's beautiful. The doctrine of inseparable operations teaches that as the Trinity is one, God, so the triune persons always act inseparably as one God and not simply cooperatively or collectively in the world. So by way of appropriation, the particular work of judgment here is attributed to the Father. But notice that unlike Mount Sinai, where Israel was unable to come even before the immediate manifestation of the presence of the Lord, here the blessing of the gospel is that we are granted access to come to God.
come to God, the judge of all. We are granted access to come to God the Father because he is our Father. He's adopted us as his sons and daughters through faith in Christ. Therefore, we should persevere in hope because we have come to God the Father, and if God is for you, who can be against you? As we read in Hebrews 12, 3 through 17, God the Father disciplines the one he loves, and he chastises the one he receives. But why is that? Romans 8, because he who did not spare his own son, but freely gave him up for us all, how will he not with him freely give us all things? My brothers and sisters, persevere in hope because you have come to God the Father. Second, familiarity with God the Spirit. The preacher says, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect. Now, it may not seem as clear at the forefront how one arrives to God the Spirit here. But by implication, we can arrive at familiarity with God the Holy Spirit. Think about this. How are the spirits of the righteous made perfect? How is the Christian made complete? The Holy Spirit. In Ephesians 1, 13 through 14, the apostle says, In him you also, when you heard the word of the truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, he says, were sealed with the redemption, sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. I think it best then to understand the spirits of the righteous made perfect is referring to all who through faith have been accounted righteous by God, all who after their earthly pilgrimage have been made complete in how? By God the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of Christ dwelling in them, having sealed them for that day of redemption. So as one theologian wrote, all justice and all perfection is from the Holy Spirit. Therefore, by implication, we can say that the blessing of the gospel is familiarity with God, the Holy Spirit. My brothers and sisters, the Spirit of Christ dwells within you. And this is the Spirit who will give life. Romans 8, 11, Paul says, If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. This is a promise. And this is not a spirit of slavery. A spirit of slavery is what we hear, have described under the curse of the law, the experience of Israel. But instead, we have the spirit of adoption. Romans 8.15, Paul says, For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. Beloved, you should persevere in hope because you have come to God, the Holy Spirit. The one who indwells you is the perfect comforter. He is the perfecter of your soul. Third and finally, familiarity with God the Son. Verse 24, the preacher says, And to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. 
The preacher has already described Christ as the mediator of the new covenant, which he goes on to describe as a better covenant. In chapter 8, verse 6, he declares the excellency of this new covenant. He says, but as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is much more excellent than the old as the covenant he mediates is better since it is enacted on better promises. In chapter 9, verse 15, the preacher provides the concluding result of the new covenant. He says, therefore, he is the mediator of a new covenant so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. You see, the prophets knew that God would establish a covenant more excellent than the old because the old was inadequate. But unlike the old, the new covenant is fully adequate and everlasting in its efficacy. Christ perfectly obeyed the precepts of the law, and Christ bore the penalty of the law on behalf of you, his people. As was mentioned earlier, Christ saw, Christ heard, and faced the curse of the law, so as the apostle Paul said, we, those who believe, might become the righteousness of God. And this is why the blood of Christ speaks a better word than the blood of bulls and goats. It speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. The blood of bulls and goats could not take away sins permanently. They could not take away sins perpetually, nor could the first bloodshed of man. The murder of Abel was but a picture. It was a picture pointing to Christ who would be murdered by his brothers. But unlike Abel, Christ gave up his life willingly for his people, for sinners, whom he would call his brothers. This is why the sprinkled blood of Christ speaks a better word, because the better word is a gracious word. As one commentator said, it speaks of eternal redemption. It speaks of the purging of consciences. It speaks of the perfection and sanctification of all to whom it is applied. It speaks of acceptance instead of rejection. It speaks of blessing instead of cursing. Abel's blood cries out, for judgment, but Christ's blood cries out for mercy and pardon. That's what we hear in that assurance of pardon in corporate worship. Christ is present by his spirit, assuring you the forgiveness of your sins. My brothers and sisters, you have this assurance that Christ's blood forever silences the accusing voice of your past, present, and future sins. This is the blessing of familiarity with God the Son. And this familiarity with God that you have received by grace is but the beginning of that beatific vision, of that beautiful vision that surpasses the vision of the Apostle John as he says in 1 John 3, 2. He says, we shall see him as he is. My friends, what has been briefly contemplated here is the true reality So as you keep running and looking to Jesus, don't forget where you have come. As you keep running and looking to Jesus, remember this foundation of all the blessings of the gospel is familiarity with God. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, from beginning to end, that to which we have come rests on the inseparable operations of God. So as our confession reads then, though many storms and floods arise and beat against them, yet they shall never be able to take them off that foundation and rock which by faith they are fastened upon. Notwithstanding through unbelief 
and the temptations of Satan, the sensible side of light of the love of God may for a time be clouded and obscured from them, yet he is still the same. And they shall be sure to be kept by the power of God and salvation, where they shall enjoy the purchased possession, they being engraven upon the palm of his hands and their names having been written in the book of life from all eternity. This is our confession. But this is not the confession of those who are present among us who remain in unbelief. Look at chapter 12, verse 25. My unbelieving friend, see that you do not refuse him who is speaking, along with the believer in this room. For if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven. If you have not come all the way to faith in Jesus Christ, I call you by the authority of Christ to repent of your sins, to come to Jesus Christ, to look away from yourself and come all the way to faith in Jesus Christ. If you do not trust in Christ alone, based on the authority of the word of God, you will die on your sins. But here, this afternoon, you've heard of the person and work of Christ. You've heard this contrast between the curse of the law and the blessing of the gospel. Come, and feed upon Christ by faith. Trust in the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved. My beloved, as you continue to run by faith, as you continue to run looking to Jesus, looking to him amidst all the troubles and the mountaintops and valleys of this life, even when you are tempted to grow weary and faint under the Lord's discipline, I exhort you, hope for what you do not see, choosing that future good, which is where you have come. Lay aside the sin of presumption, depending on your own capacities to save you. Lay aside despair, thinking much of your sin and little of God's mercy. Persevere in hope, because you have not come to the curse of the law, but the blessing of the gospel. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we bless you, and we bless you because you have blessed your people in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. We confess the sin of presumption. At times, depending upon ourselves for our salvation, we confess the sin of despair, thinking much of our sin and little of you and your marvelous works. Oh, that this day you would render us grace to continue to meditate and contemplate you and your works, this very passage and your word to us. Grant us grace, O oh Lord, to continue to persevere in hope until we reach our heavenly home. Through Christ, our Lord and Savior, the author and perfecter of our faith, through Christ we pray.